Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast episode for Friday, October the 15th of 2021. And I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Before we dive into what was a very busy week, I want to let you know all the ways you can find us, uh, starting with one of the newest ways, if you're not already aware. You can stream not only New Mexico and Focus, but any of your favorite PBS shows, not just local, but national. You can do that in what's called Over the Top on Roku or Amazon Fire or even Apple TV. Just look for the PBS app and uh, our local shows will show up in there as well. We're also there on YouTube uh, with our entire shows and segments. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So we're not too hard to find. We hope you will follow us if you don't already and keep up with us throughout the week. We're bringing you a lot, not just uh, once a week uh, during these podcasts, but throughout the week. We'll share some of that with you. But as I mentioned, it's been a busy week for sure. On Monday, we were out and about for Indigenous Peoples Day. We'll bring you some of that a little bit later. Uh, today, Friday, we are paying attention to the redistricting commission and then voting on maps to approve to send to the legislature, which will be uh, voted on in a special session probably in December. doesn't look like they are going to finish their work today. Uh, we'll continue meeting next week. But we'll have much more for you on that next week. And head to our website as well, NewMexicoInFocus.org or NMPBS.org, and you can get caught up on the redistricting stuff. But we'll start out with our line panel, as is the usual drill here on the podcast. want to let you know who we've got with us this time on our opinion panel, starting with Merritt Allen of Vox Optima, also Sophie Martin an attorney and longtime line regular. Rounding out the crew, another line regular, former state senator Diane Snyder. Kicking things off with an election uh, kick, and we know we're just a couple weeks away from municipal elections, but there were some campaign finance reports out uh, this week around the governor's race coming up next year at about this time, and so we wanted to dive into those numbers as well as talk a little bit about the State Ethics Commission, which is says they're going to restart some audit of campaign finance reports, something that hasn't been done in a couple years. Uh, and not surprisingly, line folks pretty happy to see that return, as I'm sure you are as well, all in the name of transparency. So let's jump right in. Here's Gene Grant and our line opinion panel. If you're tracking the governor's race now, more than a year out, congratulations, you're one of us. <laughs> and you know that at this stage, really the only thing other than the occasional job approval poll that we can use to gauge competitiveness is fundraising. Each reporting deadline is a milestone that means different things for different candidates. Our line opinion panel is here to help gauge progress. Joining us this week, Merritt Allen, owner of Vox Optima Public Relations. A former state senator and line regular Diane Snyder returns. Always good to see you. An attorney and line regular Sophie Martin is back for a turn as well. Now back to my milestone analogy, guys. For the governor, she's racing to bury Republican fundraising and make her victory seem inevitable. 
For Republican candidates, the milestone is a chance to claim the coveted front-runner mantle. Merritt, got to go with you on this. Which of those things mean more to you at this point? Doe in the bank or that front-runner status? Oh, absolutely, the front-runner status. Ooh. And, uh, of course, uh, my good friend, State Representative Rebecca Dow, is kind of wiping the floor with the uh, other GOP candidates, um, even considering she put her state, uh, the funds she had in her state representative account and her governor account, uh, she raised over $300,000. Um, mm-hmm. And she's got nearly half a million, 440000 in her uh, campaign account. And what's notable, if can you I, go can to I ask, report, Can I ask, Merritt, in context, yeah. is that a lot this time yes. around? Is it for folks who might don't, don't fundraise? The, uh, her average donation is $111. Mm-hmm. So this isn't this isn't the big pack money. This isn't uh, the big lobbyist corporate money. She's raising money in Rio Ariba County. Um, mm-hmm. So what that is an indicator is she's on the road. She's working hard. She's shaking hands. She's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, there's a lot of data to be gleaned from the campaign finance re- finance reports to the rest of the field. Um, if uh, you weren't taking her seriously before, certainly are taking her seriously now. Mm-hmm. She's got more than twice as much money than any other candidate. Um, and I see no sign of her letting up. It's only going to snowball from here. So, let, let yeah, me, I think yeah. it's pretty big. Let me ask Sophie this. Um, you know, Ms. Mm-hmm. Dow, as we're talking about, we're going to move on to other things too. But Ms. Dow, her campaign comparing her 440 to Susana Martinez's first run and how she hauled money that first time around. Is that is that an apt analogy here in 2021? I think it can be. Um, And and I think as well, you know, as I as we're talking, I think, well, Rebecca Dow has good name recognition, I think, amongst especially Republicans who are really paying attention, Mm -hmm. but but perhaps less, you know, state statewide uh, reputation than than uh, certainly than the current governor does. But Susana Martinez kind of came out of nowhere too, um, you know, with, again, with name recognition amongst Republicans, especially in the Southern part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, compared to her, compared to who she ran against, she, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't as well known. And so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see whether Rebecca Dow can, can sort of bootstrap up into that larger, you know, more, um, more broad, widespread, I should say, name recognition statewide. Sure, makes sense. The money will certainly help her with that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, no no question there. Uh, Senator, is there a sense among Republicans that there's anything significant about this reporting period? You know, as I said earlier, we're more than a year out from the election and more than a half a year from the primary. Are we making too much of this right now? Or or sometimes folks like Ms. Dow talking about money early, it means something. I was just going to say early money makes the biggest difference than anything. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that was surprising to me is I had heard through the grapevine and I know a couple of the other candidates is I was surprised at how much more Rebecca has raised. And if you take out her uh, legislative campaign money that she transferred in, which is legal folks, Mm -hmm. um, it's she's still outraised the other Republican candidates. So I think I thought it was a real clear message that we have some change going on in the Republican Party because as uh, Merritt said, I believe it's Merritt, said she's raising money in places like Rio Ruba County that we wouldn't mm-hmm. normally think a conservative from 
tier C or so down there would would be earning getting contributions. So yes, I think the thing that I think she has going for her, of course, that none of the other candidates have, is the fact that so many legislators and others give her the absolute credit for us having the ethics commission mm -hmm. because she did some fancy footwork, all legal fucks, because she knew her parliamentary procedure. And she was able to get that bill passed in the House at the very last minute of the session mm -hmm. and over the major objections of the Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. so, and also independent redistricting, the same thing. She can right. get stuff done. I'm sorry, that's what I meant, is the redistricting. Thank you. Let me throw, so another, I, let me, let me throw another name out there, because uh, we don't want to make this the Rebecca Dow show, sure. that's for sure. But, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, we can. Uh, well, <laughs> not really. No. Um, Sophie, let me ask you this. Rumors about Mark Ronchetti getting back in. I mean, is this a natural oh, you know, consequence of time and vacuum and all that kind of thing? Or is this? I really, I was really wanting my next comment to be, so I'm just going to throw it in. Um, what a sea change I think there is in that we, that we really are talking about, we're talking about female governors, female front runners for governor, that this is a, this is a big deal. Um, not just in our state, but, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's a big deal for our, our nation in a way to, to be like, look at these powerful women running for these positions. So Mark Ronchetti, I mean, personally, don't mess up my my narrative. But um, but also, you know, like, I guess he built some something with his last go. And so I wouldn't be surprised. It's a statewide if he didn't run. Come back. I mean, it's not yeah. as if he was doing stuff off his couch. It was a legit statewide, you know. Does that I mean, I thought, I thought that that his, yes. I mean, I think to your point, I think it was a legit run. Um, I would be really curious to see what polling looks like behind him. Yeah. Um, whether given, you know, given how it played out last time, whether he's, he's likely to pick up any additional votes this time is, is sort of up in the air for me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 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 Merritt, what's your, real quick, your sense of the Ron Ketty thing? Too early to talk about until we see something concrete we shouldn't be talking about it? it well, it I, almost I, seems I like it can't be have, helped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we have to wait and, you know, uh, um, he'll obviously uh, go with uh, Jay McCluskey again. And so it won't happen until after the Albuquerque mayor's race, since uh, McCluskey's busy running uh, Manny Gonzalez's campaign. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, Ronchetti, um, I, I think coming within five points of uh, Ben Ray Lujan, uh, that was a very respectable race uh, where he was not favored at all. And what he pulled off was very hard to do is he had to go hard right in the primary. And then he pulled center very credibly in the general election. Um, obviously, that's uh, Rebecca Dow's strategy. And so... Um, I think that uh, will definitely change up the race. Uh, he raised uh, he raised money, and then uh, uh, has proved that he can pivot to the center and mm -hmm. pick up votes. Let me let me. So um, yes, I think that's a game changer. I hear you. Let me bring um, our governor back in. I think we all expected a healthy total from the governor, who has ready access to Washington fundraising streams, et cetera, et cetera. Senator, anything surprising about this? I mean, two and a half million in the bank. It's a pretty good amount of money. That's. I think at this point, that's perfectly acceptable. Okay. Uh, maybe a little above the the average right now. Mm -hmm. I think she will continue to bring in money. I think for the first time, I I'm going to take a look at is how much money money is coming from out of state, uh. because we talked about 
the big inputs, the big people, the big packs going in and giving. And it'll just, and, and just as an interesting point for me to, to see, has she had, because she's had a little drop in the polls in some areas. Mm -hmm. So is she have, is that forcing her to go out of state to raise the big bucks, at, you know, instead of whereas right now, the, the Republican candidates are all pretty much local. Right? Very few had the maximum contributions that mm -hmm. they're allowed. Mm -hmm. So I think our governor has will continue to raise great money. It'll be interesting to see. And I, will, I look forward to the race. I would, I think it would be so exciting. And I, quite truthfully, don't get me wrong, because I've got a lot of Republican candidate friends, is I think it'd be very interesting to see another woman versus woman candidate uh, race. Yeah. Just because I think, I think Meritors, Sophie said, it's a different world we're living in right now. And I like seeing more women running. Now, the day will come when we have both a, a woman gubernatorial candidate and a woman lieutenant governor uh, candidate. Yeah. So... We still have a goal to reach here. So, real quick, guys, I want to get uh, Sophie starting with you. Um, yeah. Kind of a significant thing here: the Secretary of State has once again started auditing finance reports. It was a big deal when it began a few years back. I see Senator reacting. She knows what that was like back then. <laughs> but it only happened once between then and now. Should we be demanding a little bit more right here? Is the time not ripe for this? And I also see we've got we've got some elected folk looking for more money to augment staff. In, 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 in the committees that are that are overlooking these yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like mm -hmm. the work of this group is still kind of getting off the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there, were, there were some issues before, and, and um, so there is going to be a, a request for additional funding, mm -hmm. additional staffing. They actually la lost some staff uh, earlier, and so, you know, I think even to meet the goals that are set for them now, it sounds like they need more staffing and more funds, but yeah. but they have an ambitious and a million plus um, budget they're looking for to do it. Right, mm -hmm. right, and they're and they're looking at expanding their work. So I mean, I think uh, it's it's not unreasonable if if there's support for the work of the ethics commission, it's unreasonable that they would need more resources to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Now there right. is some debate about the the merits of that work. And I guess I will leave that to Merit or, or Diane if they want to talk about it regrettably, further, but. Regrettably, we're out of time on that one, but we're gonna pick uh, up on that as, as time goes along. Good, good toss right. there, we're out of time. But campaigns certainly aren't done fundraising. So we'll be revisiting both totals and enforcement as we get closer to next year's election. If you have been keeping track of this podcast or just the news headlines, you'll know that we're now apparently just a couple of days away from the first ever strike of the below-the-line film and TV uh, union workers. These are IATSE, as it's called, uh, members. We've been talking to folks for a while now, and they have authorized a strike, which uh, is set at least right now as we're speaking uh, for Sunday night into Monday morning. If that happens, uh, tune into Facebook Live on Monday. We're going to try to go out and cover uh, some of the picket lines. But uh, we've been keeping track of this, as we mentioned, and want to start out with a brief update of why we're at this point, what uh, the negotiations have stalled out over, and just how big a deal this really is. 
And then immediately after that, you'll hear from some local New Mexico IATSE union members and workers and find out a little bit more about their work conditions and what that is like and what their concerns are. So send it back to Gene Grant now on the looming IATSE strike. So their argument would be, look, guys, we're number one, we're, our business model is extremely in flux. Like we don't know if we're going to be able to make as much money on streaming as we made with the traditional theater model. Right. And then, you know, we've also had to spend all this money just to get back up into business, like right. all this money on uh, COVID protocols. It's like a 10%, 15% of the budget now goes towards, you know, all these COVID protections. So their argument, and, you know, it's an argument you'd expect them to make, but it's their argument is, you know, we're hurting. We're not in a position to be super generous this time around. Mm-hmm. Referring back to the IATSE head, Mr. Loeb, and what comes next. You made an interesting point at the bottom of the piece that it's all well and good to be fired up about a strike authorization vote. And as a member of two unions and one of which did come to a strike point, it's a whole nother deal when you have an actual strike vote oh, yeah. and actually hitting the bricks. It's a, and, and again, no predictions here. I don't wanna go there, but in your sense of it, it you know, does the membership, does the union membership have a full grasp of what it really would mean to strike and, and fully here? It's hard to say. I mean, one thing that you could say about it is they did just have a shutdown for COVID a year ago. And so everybody was out of work, you know, thrown out of work with no warning in March of 2020. True. And they found a way to survive, right? And yep. so there might be a feeling of like, well, I've already been through four or five months, six months without work, you know, I know how that goes. It doesn't scare me the way it might otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. when you're on strike, you don't get unemployment, right? And when you're thrown out of work for COVID and they have all these special programs, especially for gig workers and the plussed up unemployment, I mean, it's a different thing. Um, I, I still think, you know, most people are sort of not expecting a strike necessarily, even with this vote. I think they feel like this is what we had to do to get them back to the table and we'll find a deal. And like the issues aren't so fundamental that there isn't some middle ground that can be found. Um, but yeah, as you said, like if you're, if you're out of work, it, it's three weeks, it's four weeks, you know, trying to keep everybody together. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if, you know, one side's getting something and the other side's not, and you know, you could start to play one off the other a little bit, like it could get a little bumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, there's a lot of unity. Obviously, everybody's feeling very good about that vote, um, and they should. But um, you know, it, it's a different animal, as you said, when you're in, when you're actually on strike. Very much so. I remember we got 50 bucks a week in strike pay. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you something right. that didn't work out too well for a lot of people. So you know, and that's and that's the interesting part about these kind of things. It is a risk, isn't it? I mean, it's a game of chicken at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's the only leverage they have, right? Like, right. what can you do when you're in a union? You can go on strike. Like, that's that's your power. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what they have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, they've made the point that, like, no, we're serious about these issues. And, you know, uh, they've never even done a strike authorization vote before, much less a strike. Right. Um, you know, IOTC has been around for 128 years. They've never had a nationwide strike so that's what we're talking about shutting down all of film and tv production across the country for the first time i mean it's a big step
let's start with workplace uh, complaints and things like that. We'll get on in detail later, but in your general sense, what's been the sense of the local 480 folks here uh, about how the treatment has gone on film sets over these past few years? Are, are, are we in the same sort of boat other states are? Is it worse here? I, I, what's your sense of it? I'd say that for sure the industry here is is a microcosm of the industry as a whole. Um, and in a state like New Mexico, uh, where the agreement in question that, that we're fighting uh, for right now uh, to make changes on now, um, in, in New Mexico specifically, crew in most cases can be treated as, as local hires no matter where they live uh, within the state. So you've got a lot of folks in New Mexico that may be living two hours or so from where they're reporting to and from work. Um, and as you, as you mentioned, uh, rest periods are, are a big deal. The time in between when they wrap from work and when they're expected to report to work um, is a big concern. Uh, a lot of calls that I get, uh, frankly, there's a lot of dismay over the fact that, uh, you know, essentially if you're traveling two hours to and from work with a 10 hour rest period, that's going to give you six hours to yourself, right? Um, and then also talking about the weekend rest period is another, is another big uh, point of contention uh, that we deal with in terms of workplace concerns uh, and scheduling as, a, as it kind of pertains to the agreement that we're fighting for. You guys know this, but for anybody watching that doesn't know, we have had a, tra uh, a tragedy here regarding uh, Longmire. We had, you know, someone with long hours and making a long drive and, you know, falling asleep behind the wheel you know, Sean, is a very real thing out there. I hear it about this from, from film people all the time. And I appreciate what Jessica just mentioned that, you know, even from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, an hour is a long time behind the wheel when you're exhausted. Have you had to deal with this as well in your work with 480 on film shoots here? Definitely. Um, it's, it's pretty common. It's pretty common that you are going to get off, you know, at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And a lot of times what makes it dangerous is we shoot in a lot of different locations. You could be out in the mountains. This is one of the things that, you know, is going to make it even more dangerous. You're on switchback roads, you know, you're exhausted. You've worked possibly up to 70 hours that week. Um, and, you know, you're using all your faculties just to get home. Uh, loads of people have fallen asleep at the wheel and, and, you know, just showed up for work on Monday morning, you know, and it's lucky. Mm -hmm. It's lucky a lot of times. Um, and yeah, that's just what we're, we're trying to fight against. Jessica, I'm curious again, again, you, so many issue areas that you deal with on, on film sets. Um, the level of optimism you're, you're feeling from folks that there's a literally a better day coming. I mean, these are, you know, you're artists, you want to do stuff, you want to make things, people want to create stuff. They don't want to have to, you know, risk their lives to do it. I'm curious if you're feeling like, you know, hey, we could be turning a corner here. Something good could be coming for all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. I do get that sentiment out there. And I think that folks are taking this opportunity to become informed, uh, become empowered um, and really understand the conditions uh, that, that they are the, the production company is obliged to give them and understand uh, the limits that the production company will go. They will they will push the limits of anything that's minimally obliged. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that uh, after years of seeing them essentially uh, ignore our quality of life needs while they reap the benefits, uh, specifically new media producers, um, I feel ma making hand over fist. I think that now we're the, there's a, a sense in the membership and I think it's absolutely uh, 
has come about from the pandemic where everybody's reevaluating their place and what's important to them and, mm -hmm. and seeing, yes, seeing brighter days ahead, how we can get there, what we can do, what we can demand to make our quality of life just as good as the folks up above. The, uh, normally the second Tuesday of the month, this month is a little strange, but uh, one of our favorite shows of the month, whenever it falls, is always when we bring you an Our Land Signature segment with correspondent Laura Paskus. This month is no different. We've been excited to bring this one to you. Got a lot of great images and things we put up on social media before today, um, but it is a fun one with the group Together for Brothers. Uh, this is uh, part of their work where they are really trying to connect young men of color to our great outdoor places. Uh, and that sounds very simple. Trust us, it is not. Uh, if you don't have a car, just getting to the Bosque or the foothills of the Sandias, a lot harder than you might think. And so uh, they are out to overcome those barriers and teach these young men things like how to deal with public transportation, how to get your bike on a city bus, get out to these places, and what it means to have those connections to the outdoor places. And so just a great episode. Laura Pasquez, as always, does a great job, and these folks tell their story in a great way. So let's dive right in with Our Land and Together for Brothers. pandemic, people flocked to public lands, places like parks and hiking trails. So many of us wanted to be outside where it felt safe to hike, bike, be alone, or be with close friends and family. It makes me think about there's so much national media right now about over usage of parks during COVID, but it makes me think, but overusage by who, right? Low-income communities still don't have access, and we're gonna to try to limit people's access to outdoor spaces. For people without cars, there is no way to reach national parks, state parks, or most of the state's hiking trails. Together for Brothers has one project that helps young men and their families from underserved neighborhoods in Albuquerque, like the International District in Westgate, make it to the foothills of the Sandias and the Bosque of the Rio Grande. out in the Bosque for the first time, a couple um, at the beginning of the summer when we organized our first hike, 90% of the youth organizers had never been to the Bosque. And these are folks who live their entire lives in Albuquerque. I'm used to, you know, concrete. That's, well, from, from where I'm from, when I look at the mountains and, the, and you know, and I, and I hear about the Bosque and stuff, they just sound like faraway places. 
uh, similar to like the Grand Canyon or something like that. A place that I shouldn't, like, you know, I couldn't really get to. I don't have the time to get to. Over the summer, the young men started taking city buses to the foothills in the river and shooting videos to show other families how to do it too. Pinch this up, pull down, put this right here. You want your front tire to be the one that gets this on it? Then you just make it, oh, this is, uh, you can or you can put it in this one, either one. One of the things today when we were thinking of coming doing a hike, we actually thought about first hiking to the Petroglyphs and realized there actually isn't good public transit to most of the public um, sites of the Petroglyph National Monument. And this is so common. Valle de Oro in the South Valley is the first urban wildlife refuge in the United States with a strong environmental justice component to its mission, and yet there's no bus line. Public access, something many of us take for granted, is just not universal. Most of us either need a vehicle or need our parents to take us somewhere, and sometimes we don't feel comfortable riding the bus, so it also allows for us to get some physical exercise and also help us with our mental health, even though it's not really talked about, it's more important than people think. All right, let's stop right here. Nah, man, it's way too hard. All right, let me take a little break. And young men of color don't always know if public spaces are safe for them or their families, or what challenges they might face there. Low-income families are often told that things like the outdoors are a privilege or a luxury. And the reality is, earlier today, we asked young people of color to say, what did the outdoors do for you? Mental health, emotional health, physical exercise, time with my family, not connected to technology. And when I think of who, who needs that the most, it's the young people and the families in the most impacted neighborhoods. Oh, it's a nice view. I like it. Ramirez says that young men of color from these neighborhoods feel like they don't have a right to public lands, like they don't deserve that access so many just expect. For his part, Grubbs has loved getting outside, and he has advice for other men and their families. These are places for everybody. If you don't think you should go there, go there. Try it out and you'll probably enjoy it. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Paskus. We had so much great content on, on this episode, this segment of Our Land. We had drones, we had GoPros, and some of the Together for Brothers folks actually helped us shoot with the GoPro. And so a lot of great visuals that you miss here on the podcast, but not to worry. Head to our YouTube or our Facebook pages, and you can see and watch the full segment in all its visual glory. You can also head to our website at NewMexicoInFocus.org. Look for our land and watch it there. Before we move on, uh, again... Uh, Christopher Ramirez, who you heard in that piece, uh, just does such a great job of, of explaining, again, how important this is to get our young men of color out to these spaces and the lasting impact that can have. 
He's got a great analogy, uh, Roots to Rivers, that he talks about. And we want to give him an opportunity to explain that to you a little more here before we move on this week. So here is Christopher Ramirez of Together for Brothers. I want to go back to something, Roots and Rivers, right? T for B, our young people came up with this idea of roots and rivers. When we think of, see a problem in our community, we need to go to the root causes because oftentimes the presenting problem, like, oh, I have a headache. I need to take an aspirin for the headache. When reality is, wait a minute, why do I have a headache? Is it because I haven't eaten? Is it because I'm really stressed about school? Is it because I have to make a choice about like deciding to ask a person on a date and I'm not sure they're going to say yes? But there might be a, a, the presenting problem isn't often the root cause. So if we can have people most impacted talking about root causes, that's roots. And if we can think of rivers, oftentimes the things that are happening in our community are the policies are upstream and decided by others. But we want the most impacted communities to go upstream and be part of that systems change and part of that decision making themselves. And for me, this is exactly why, and I want to be very transparent about even recently, gun violence in our community, whether that's what happened in Washington Middle School most recently, or um, knowing that we know in our community that young men of color are the most likely perpetrators, but also victims of gun violence in Albuquerque. Not that the outdoors can solve that problem, but it's part of it, right? Young people deserve to, be, to have the access because the outdoors can heal us. And when we have programs like outdoor recreation, dance, music, um, good healthy cooking, community gardening, and the variety of things. When we invest in that, we're really investing in, in the community, right? T4B has a vision that young men of color are healthy, their families are healthy, and the community is healthier because of that. So it's just like you said, right? It, we're not talking about just young men of color because young men of color are part of our, of our community. We're all impacted by that, right? So if we wanna really address, for example, safety and crime in our community, is it really more police or is it much more programming and asking young people, what do you want and need right now, right? What are the connections that you're lacking that we can invest in? And I think about this, for every dollar we spend on police, if we spent 10 cents on, on youth programming that was positive youth development, that was getting young people, and, and outdoor recreation is only part of that, the, the puzzle, right? But here's the great thing, when young people are connected to the outdoors, they start to see themse themselves as part of something larger. They see they, see they are connected, they start understanding, because we talk about issues of environmental justice, so they understand this is native land, right? They understand why the water is important, we have to talk about why, why the water doesn't flow all the way to the mouth of the Rio Grande anymore, right? Um, but that's why it's important for all, all of Albuquerque to understand when young people, when young men of color, when young people who don't have access do, that it can positively impact the whole community, right? When young men of color are healthier, the whole community is healthier, right? And that's not about adding police officers to APD or the Bernalillo County Sheriff or the state police department. That's about saying, let's invest in us. Let's invest in young people. Right? Let's invest in youth jobs. Let's invest in free transit so that young people can get where they need to go. Um, and so I think, I, I really hope that viewers will understand that those dollars invested, by the way, are generational dollars, right? We're, we're, we're healing generational trauma, but we believe we're actually healing, right, each other. And that's also future generations. Can you imagine, you know, future generations of people in Albuquerque who have equitable access to outdoors so that this river doesn't get right developed the way that 
past mayors have wanted to, where people have spoken up and said, nah, we don't want that in Albuquerque. We want to keep it as, um, as wild as it can be, right? We've already kind of tamed the river enough. We, but, but young people deserve, the future young people in Albuquerque, future families in Albuquerque deserve that same access too. All right, as we mentioned off the top of the show, this week started out with what until very recently was a holiday for some that we recognized as Columbus Day. But of course, here in New Mexico, it is now Indigenous Peoples Day. And we saw lots of uh, gatherings and celebrations and uh, even protests around um, Indigenous Peoples Day this week. Even those protests taking on a bit of a different turn from some other years. Wow, Siri, she wants to get involved in the podcast this week. You know what? We're just going to keep that in there. Uh, Anyway, back to Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, some of the things that happened here in Albuquerque. We visited a couple places. Shout out to Antonia Gonzalez. Of course, she's a correspondent here. She was up in Old Town for a demonstration of sorts, walking in and around Old Town, which was a much different tone than where we caught up with Antonia later, which was down on Civic Plaza, uh, where a lot of folks gathered to mark and honor Indigenous Peoples Day. And even that had a somber tone to it uh, with a focus on the missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, issue that we've talked about a ton on the show. Also, uh, the recent realizations of the tragedies and atrocities at former Indian boarding schools. And so I want to give you a bit of flavor of both of those events. Uh, And, of course, there were a bunch more all across the state. But here's a taste of what happened here in Albuquerque for Indigenous Peoples Day. this afternoon with recognizing as well all of our missing, murdered, indigenous relatives that are still out there today. That you are not forgotten, we will find you, that we love you, and that we will have you back home someday. As well as recognizing all of those innocent lives that we recognized just recently that were taken by the atrocities that took place with boarding schools, all those young and innocent Native American children that were taken from their homelands to a different place in this world, unknowing what was coming to them, expected to live a different life. And for those that did not come home, we too, we appreciate you, we love you, and we will never forget you. This crisis has its roots in colonialism and racism and is perpetuated by indifference 
and silence. The responsibility falls on each one of us to end this historic violence against our indigenous communities, which has devastated us for far too long. I wanna thank all of you warriors on the front lines, like you, Miski, who continue to create space and use your voice so that no one forgets. I pray for your continued strength and want you to know that you are heard and you are not alone in the fight. Today we come together to celebrate and honor the tremendous contribution that New Mexico's indigenous people and communities have made throughout history. And indeed, we must also remember the terrible losses that they have endured. And our elders teach us prophetically that there would be a time in our life journey that other people from all walks of life would come upon our path in our life journey. But the elders teach us that how we respond to the threats of all of the gifts of the Creator would be the ultimate expression of our love for those gifts. We are a resilient people. That we are a resilient population, that we understand that it is because of our ancestors that we are still here in 2021. And we owe a debt to all of those that have come before us, that cried, sweat, bled, gave the ultimate sacrifice of, of death to ensure that I would have a shot at being able to create days like this. We will end things for this episode where we began. That's with the line opinion panel. Again, a reminder this week, it's Merritt Allen, Vox Optima, former state Senator Diane Snyder, and Sophie Martin, a longtime line regular. And in this segment, we're diving into something that I'm sure you've all felt in one way or another, and that is the health care shortage in large part because of COVID-19. Uh, we've heard tons about the burnout and people leaving the profession after a really long, nearly two years now. Uh, in addition, you've got some people potentially leaving, uh, at least temporarily, over vaccine mandates. And uh, a lot of breaking news really on Friday around all of that. There was a lawsuit filed by some LANL employees that was challenging uh, vaccine mandates there that has been dismissed by a judge. Uh, in addition, uh, we know that the governor is going to uh, keep the indoor mask mandate in place for at least a couple of more weeks, November 12th now the date uh, for that. Um, lots of people sounding off on that. Uh, Republican lawmakers, Republican Party Chairman Steve Pierce. Um, but it all comes as we had, I believe, 801 new COVID cases today. We are not seeing... The cases go down as we had hoped, and so that is why we see uh, that. But uh, this healthcare care uh, shortage is, is an issue that even predates COVID, as you will hear the panelists talk about. 
And so let's dive right in with our line opinion panel and host, Gene Grant. Exhausted, discouraged, frustrated. That's how Dr. David Scrace, New Mexico's acting health secretary, describes morale among the state's hospital staff. For more than a year and a half, they've been slogging through the mire of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hospital ICUs are still almost at capacity for what Dr. Scrace now calls a preventable illness. In fact, Sophie, in recent news briefings, he pointed to burnout as a key reason for medical staff quitting, not to vaccine mandates by their employers or the state. Interesting debate here. Does that seem legit to you coming from Dr. Scrace? It seems pure legit to me. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we knew that medical workers, health workers were burning out before um, and before vaccine requirements were leaving the profession or shifting to other options before before vaccine mandates. And um, and I, I mean, I just I have to express profound sympathy. I'm burnt out and I'm not watching people right. struggle for their lives <laughs> on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thought of having to do that, even with all of their experience and training, it just it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. So um, surprised that there's this crisis. I mean, I, th I think it's a crisis. 13,000 open positions in New Mexico's uh, healthcare healthcare facilities. Yep. It's very telling. It's a telling number. Entirely predictable as yep. far as I'm concerned. And I don't, I see the vaccine mandates. Yeah, there are some people who are objecting to them in the healthcare setting, you know, some healthcare professionals. But mm -hmm. um, this, I agree with Dr. Scrace, this is one of the best things that we can do to alleviate some of the pressure on our hospitals and hopefully mm -hmm. save the lives of New Mexicans. Mm -hmm. Hey, Merritt, same question to you. We've heard warnings about healthcare workers leaving, like Sophie mentioned, in droves. And while some people have quit, instead of getting vaccinated, New Mexico's healthcare systems say that number is just a handful. Is burnout the bigger concern here? Or are you on the, on the side that it actually is the vaccines that are driving some of these uh, uh, resignations? Well, the, the vaccine mandate, um, you know, that decision would not have been taken lightly by any of the private employers uh, uh, operating uh, health care activities. Uh, that was, you know, uh, a risk management decision made for the benefit of the population they were serving. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I'm sure that, that was not taken lightly. So, no, I'm, I'm not putting that on the vaccine mandate. Uh, New Mexico's health care system was in crisis well before the pandemic. Uh, and, and we know this, particularly in our rural areas. I mean, my hometown, uh, the county hospital there is really functioning as a place to uh, deliver a baby, have a broken bone set and otherwise be triaged before being sent to a hospital in Tucson, El Paso or Albuquerque hmm. um, because they don't have the staff. And that's that was in many ways the case before. Uh, the pandemic. So it was only going to take one major event to tip the scale into a, into a free fall. And we're in that. And it's hard because we have to watch that free fall and we're all experiencing it and our loved ones are experiencing it. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator, you know, part of the problem, um, the politics of being vaccinated, which Republican stalwarts from Mitch McConnell, I'll remind you, to President Trump, <laughs> says it's what you should do. Kind of got buried in the noise back then, but they did say this. It seems you know, likely that jam-packed hospitals are something we're willing to live with as a society. What, am I seeing this wrong? What, what's going on here? No, I, I think you see smaller groups of people protesting against having it. I think that um, 
the top leadership in most cases of Republicans have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And so their message is clear. But I think there are some groups and people, which is their right to, uh, is to protest against it. Uh, I'm very concerned about health workers, if they are protesting against it, maybe they know more than I know, or Dr. Grace, certainly Dr. Grace knows, Mm -hmm. but um, if they're, because they're exposing themselves, some of them, not all, daily, and I don't know and haven't seen any data on whether the healthcare workers who are saying, no, I won't get a vaccine, whether they are the ones dealing with the COVID patients. They may not be. Mm-hmm. They may be delivering babies or something like that that has nothing to do with the increased risk of exposure in, in healthcare facilities. So I don't know that little piece of information that could make a difference. I, uh, I worry about those who don't get it, if, if they are working with patients who do, Right. or even the elderly, whether mm-hmm. they might bring something in with them, which is the other situation, but the, the end result may be that they end up taking the disease home to their families. And I realize I'm not in charge of everybody else's family. I just, it, I worry about it as an overriding issue, not a political issue. Gotcha. For me, it isn't. Gotcha. So, yeah. Hey, Sophie, interestingly, news broke this week. Drug company Merck has an antiviral pill to treat COVID, mm-hmm. like monoclonal antibodies. People have to get COVID before it has the possibility to do them any good. You y- can't have the right. pill until you've got the disease. That's <laughs> exactly a nice. Right. <laughs> like, it, you start it, it, taking it prophylactically now. But you know human <laughs> no, behavior. Do not do that. You do know human <laughs> behavior, though, in that a pill form versus a shot is a very different deal for a whole lot of people out there. Is this a way around the vaccination issue possibly? Well, I mean, I think some people will perceive it as such. And I feel mm-hmm. like I do need to, to sort of mention that there has been reportage as well about the possibility of a COVID vaccine patch. Mm-hmm. Um, so delivery, de- dermal delivery, which that. is, I yep. think that's probably not the right term, but you know, slap mm-hmm. on the patch. Um, but I think some people will use the the Merck drug as um, justification perhaps for not getting the vaccine. It is very much after the fact. And what we do know about COVID, because there is good research on this, is that you can have and spread COVID. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember we've talked about this before. You can have and spread COVID before you have symptoms or right. you can have COVID with no symptoms yep. and still spread it. And so the, this is the, very the point, much the point of the after pill, though, the horses have left the barn this pill right. yeah you might start treatment with the pill but you could still have already spread it spread COVID to others yeah. in advance of that treatment so that, swing, that's something that concerns me let me swing a uh, merit here on that same question you know again i'm on this human behavior thing <laughs> when it comes to pill form versus shots i'm interested in your in your point of view on that i, I don't know i mean uh, to me um uh, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a shot person. I get my flu shot. I was in the military, so mm-hmm. I didn't really have an option on shots. I got a bunch of shots. Uh, some of them were decidedly- You survived un- them! <laughs> right. Um, yellow fever, I do not recommend to anyone, but you got to get it. And you don't get, you, you don't get an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, and, and as a, a private employer, 
and a Department of Defense contractor. I do not have a choice. I just got the modification to my largest contract that um, quotes the executive order. And for my employees to um, uh, continue working under this contract, they have to be vaccinated. So I guess mm -hmm. a pill is a nice idea. Um, how, how did your employees so, take that, by the way? I'm curious, uh, do you have a... We, we simply ex explained that this executive order was coming and this was the deadline and everyone needed to provide, it, pr provide proof of vaccination by X date. And so far it has not become an issue. And okay. we simply said, you know, uh, we understand that we've all been through a lot together through this pandemic and we trust everybody will handle it with the same professionalism they've handled everything. Mm -hmm. And please let us know if you have any questions. It is, it's not come up right. because it's, you know, to Diane's point, it's, um, it's a personal decision and it's, a con it's been made a, a condition of employment, not by my choice, by the federal government's choice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it kind of goes back to these hospitals who have done risk assessments and they've determined for whatever reason that their best risk is for all of their employees to be vaccinated. And mm -hmm. then it becomes a matter of choice. Um, and so whether people are holding out because they think a pill will somehow cure them of COVID, um, it's, you know, it's still That's the um, danger. That's experimental. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, so if ingesting a, a pill as opposed to getting a shot is somehow more palatable to you, well, good on you. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's fine. I still think um, I'm, I'm, I'm a shot person. I, I think preventative uh, care is, is the way to go. And I would encourage everyone um, to get vaccinated. But I would also say, um, don't be a jerk about it. If you know your friend doesn't want to get vaccinated, don't be abusive. If you don't want to be vaccinated and your families, uh, your family members who are vaccinated, don't be abusive. Mm -hmm. Don't be don't be unpleasant about it. Mm -hmm. Hey, speaking of jam pack, that's going to do it for our line opinion panel this week. Since we have a very full show, you can catch our one more thing discussion on Facebook, as you can as you can every week by going to the New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. Still ahead, our land and Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, that'll do it for a very busy podcast episode. We've got much more for you in store in our next episode as well, including a new news outlet for you news junkies, current affairs junkies out there. You may have heard of them, but Source New Mexico came on the scene just a little less than a couple months ago and already pumping out a lot of great news. We're going to meet some of the familiar faces and voices behind that endeavor and find out what they're looking to accomplish and what you can expect if you head to their website. Also, a look at pretrial detention in New Mexico. This is a complicated one, but we break it all down for you with the head of the administrative office of the courts. He is the director, Artie Pepin. And so lots coming your way. Until then, we hope you have a great weekend. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and we appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you again soon.